Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Hobo with a shotgun or hallelujah, I'm a bum. <laughs> Hello friends, welcome. Welcome to another episode of Horror Vanguard. I am your co-ghost John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, joined, as always, uh, by my friend and your comrade, everybody's comrade, Ash. Ash is here. How are you doing? Uh, you know, you know, doing doing pretty good, all, all, all things considered. Um, shrug. <laughs> it was a yeah. wonderful mail day. I got a, I got a, I got a deck of playing cards I've been waiting for in the mail, and so now I'm like, I'm a happy camper today, and I got some cleaning uh, done. It's been a nice uh, day. I I had a COVID test and I'm not allowed to leave the house for the next few days, but I am also doing really well. Um, it is it's going to be a really it's going to be a really good episode. I'm super excited about what we're going to talk about today. But first, a word from our sponsors. This program is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you for listening and stay spooky. It's not wolves. It's wolfing. 20,000 years. Ten times you're fucking Christian era. There are times, there are times on this show, and I'm sure, Ash, you will agree with this, where we occasionally have to read a film sort of against the grain uh, as leftists, as people who are interested in the downfall of capitalism. We, we have to kind of like dig into a film to really get at the kind of like revolutionary theory that's in there. This week, this week is not <laughs> one of those times. It is not one of those times. <laughs> This week is is this week we're talking about a film which doesn't has never even heard of the word subtext. Uh, this week we're talking about something which is is just all text. Is just all text. We are talking about 2011's Hobo with a Shotgun. If you have never if you've never seen it, and if you can't work out what it's about from its title. <laughs> <laughs> Ash is going to explain what Hobo with a Shotgun is really all about. So, so for this one, I honestly debated just reading the title again for the pricey. <laughs> it's about it's about as straightforward as you get with today's movie. <laughs> but, uh, but no, no, I decided decided it needs a little bit of that secret sauce, a little spice. So, uh, here we go. <clears throat> uh, this precy is actually titled, unlike all of my other precies, which are just ramblings. Uh, this one is a spirited defense of boomers. <laughs> Today, I would like to speak with you about one of the most deleterious linguistic affects of contemporary left parlance. Boomer has become a much maligned insult levied at older people. Less of an accurate assessment of the ways in which our forebears failed the current political moment and more of a reflexive. We aren't decrying their inaction. We're emerging as a collective Cassandra decrying a future wherein we followed in their footsteps. There is much to say about the loss this discourse creates. 
But first and foremost must be the recognition that there is another boomer. A boomer that has been forgotten, but the long memory reaches back and pulls them into the now. This episode is no mere movie review. It's an act of conjuration. We, you and I, dear listener, are reaching back through the ages and pulling a memory from then to now. The boomers of whom I now speak were temporary workers and wanderers who traveled the United States in search of work. They followed economic and industrial booms, hence their name. They would come booming into town just before a harvest and be welcomed, for then they had money to spend. But when the boom ended, they would be shunned as bums and tramps and forced to move on. These boomers were key players in the birth of our contemporary labor struggles. They were leading figures in the IWW. Joe Hill can be counted amongst their numbers. These were the original boomers, unhoused workers, hobos, forced to hitch rides and freight trains and sleep in the forested areas outside of town. These were people with lives, names, and memories. Memories we must now carry in our hearts, lest we fade away and be subsumed in tomorrow's, into tomorrow's fleeting pop culture parlance. Join us as we reforge yet another link in our collective memory, as we discuss Hobo with a Shotgun. Um, Hashtag Boomer Defender, logging on. Uh, just not the boomer you might have expected. I... I'm, I'm, I, I find it, I'm, I find myself sort of moved at the, at your boomer defense. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it, that is, that is what intergenerational solidarity looks like. That's a beautiful thing. Little, a little linguistic sleight of hand there, and how we've lost, lost memory of the original boomers, who would have been born. If we're, if we're going to discuss this in terms of generations, they would have been born two generations before the baby boomers were born. Whatever, whatever yeah. name that generation has. Uh, there probably is a kind of correct sociological term for them, right? Um, but no, we are talking about uh, a particular, a particular kind of, of of subject, a particular kind of existence that um, is very historically kind of grounded, right? If we're going to mm -hmm. talk about, if we're going to talk about this seriously, and we always try and take, you know, it, even if it's a film that prominently features. Uh, genuinely cartoonish levels of gore or you know in previous versions big dicks slathered <laughs> to the hill with peanut butter we we are always we are always kind of taking it art seriously on its own terms we took so to veronica seriously and glenn danzig didn't even take veronica seriously <laughs> we're going to be taking glenn danzig's next next movie seriously as well <laughs> so where where do you want to start where where will we where should we begin um well since you and i are both uh, gentlemen on the left of politics and this is indeed a historically grounded film there's probably no better way to start a, a movie about hobos or start discussing one rather than talking about trains uh i i i, I thoroughly agree Let's talk about train. <laughs> Welcome to the next six hours of this episode. It's going to be the two of us just talking about how much we like trains. Trains are great, aren't they? Honestly, uh, that was my favorite thing about living in the UK. It wasn't the NHS. It was the fact that I could just ride trains everywhere and ride them all day. I am, I am genuinely baffled at how shockingly dreadful 
the American train system is. The, it's it's a mistake to even talk about one system, isn't it? It's you know it's it's uh, incredibly patchy as well, and it it doesn't seem to be like people people would rather not use the train, right? Have I got that right? Um, yeah, trains trains in America are are patchy. They're unreliable. Um, local train networks like light rails uh, very poorly interconnect in with national lines, uh, which which makes them less useful than they need to be. Um, and on top of that, like uh, Amtrak, which is the the national rail here in the United States, and that's the one that serves you know national travel. Uh, deeply, deeply underfunded. They are always and constantly facing budget cuts. Uh, so that's just like to paint a rough picture that the American rail infrastructure is uh, dire, but it's kind of always been dire. Like it's never been good. Unlike, you know, like the, the British rail system used to be amazing and it's like comparatively, it's still incredible, but it's gotten worse and worse and worse as it's been privatized and lines have been shut down. Uh, but this this dovetails us back into the movie really nicely because like this is part of like the founding condition of of what the hobo was as a historic figure, right? Talked about this in the Precy, right? A lot of these people were union activists and labor organizers, um, but they had to they had to follow wherever industries were booming, right? You know, if it was time if it was time to go do some logging, they would they would go up north to like Seattle or Wisconsin to do some logging, or like they'd follow harvests and other industries. Um, but like they didn't own cars, you know, like you didn't have the money for that. Right. You couldn't like take other forms of travel. You couldn't ride on like a commuter line. So they would hitch rides on freight trains. Right. And this is part of like what is now kind of like legendary iconography, right? Like the hobo riding the rails and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So there is this kind of like exit or, or, um, kind of marginality to capitalist modes of production, but at the same time. Uh, that figure, the hobo, is completely indispensable, right? Especially historically. So when uh, certain industries are, are are in boom time, there's a desperate need for for workers. But at the same time, you don't exist as any part of kind of a fixed community. You're not seen as kind of being normative. You don't own a car. You don't have your own house. So you're you're the, at once you're kind of like central to specifically economic capitalism uh, or modes of production but and at the same time you're kind of marginalized you're kind of pushed to the outskirts yeah ab absolutely and like it, it's worth pointing out that this still goes on today you know like uh, uh the rail hopping as a means of transportation is much less common but like we, we still have you know these these incredibly housing insecure workers who are forced to follow uh in particular the harvest season you know, and there, there's a lot of good um, activist Twitter accounts that you can follow. Um, perhaps I'll link some in the show notes that kind of like document the lived conditions of people who like actually harvest your food. Mm. And like just just the wild things you see, like like people getting paid less than a nickel for like uh, a bundle of beets and just like the sheer inhumanity of these working conditions. Like it's it's worth pointing out that like all of the cultural artifacts that make the hobo kind of like a unique historic figure have kind of subsided. But like that modality of labor still exists and it's still where it was before which is the core of capitalism yeah but but socially mm -hmm. deliberately marginalized yes right? absolutely as, especially as capitalist supply chains have gotten longer so we're like frequently very far removed from the actual conditions of how uh food commodities and everything else is actually produced 
um i think probably the thing that's that's um i totally agree with you about farm work um uh, during harvest time but clothing manufacturer is probably something else that's very very similarly um exploited um you know it's no surprise right you know if the 20s was the birth of the iww the 60s you had um the massive drive to to unionize farm uh, laborers and uh, uh fruit pickers unions you're going to see the same thing happening again now yeah absolutely yeah no i i completely agree and i think it's like it's just really good to set this kind of historic and also contemporary context in which this movie negotiates itself and in which this movie is sitting. Yes, because it would be very easy to go, well, our protagonist is just a nameless hobo, but like that's you, you actually have to kind of like think about what, what does that mean? And too often it's, it's easy to just be passively, you know, uh, receiving something that a film broadcasts out to you. But if you can contextualize that, that choice you actually realize that like it's tied into all of these like really deep and important and vital historical discourses. Absolutely. And his, his so Rutger Howard plays our character who's just known as the hobo. Uh, he, he doesn't have a, a proper name in the context of the movie, but um, even that is an important historic decision, right? Like mm-hmm. in, in that period culture, right? In, in that context of like twenties uh, uh, where, where the hobo emerges as kind of this iconographic piece of American culture like there there were a lot of people who kind of let go of their birth names right in um in one of um utah phillips's famous songs right uh oh, what's what's the what's the lyric um a hobo doesn't need a name because a hobo gets no mail you know like you have no address you have no bank account you have no proper you know, reason to hold on to your birth name so like a lot of nicknames emerge and a lot of things like that like the um, the popular hobo nickname for Jesus Christ, uh, famed Christian religious icon. <laughs> I don't know why I felt the need to like explain who Jesus was. I'm sure people were very grateful. Well, we're we're a horror movie <laughs> podcast, you know. Maybe maybe you don't know. Um, but like uh, the, the the period slang for Jesus Christ, particularly amongst like the IWW um of that time was jerusalem slim which which mirrors uh the kind of like nicknames that would emerge amongst uh these kind of like traveling workers mm-hmm. so that that lack of a name is also an important thing that's that's connected into the material realities of how this labor is done so our protagonist arrives in town uh it is a um seems like it's a pretty rough town some serious kind of social problems um and he uh ends up looking for work but he i I think what's interesting is we've kind of been talking about this in very historical terms and then we kind of run into something that feels like a much more contemporary version of how uh hobo people who don't have um permanent residencies people who are homeless how they're treated in capitalist systems which is where he comes up across the guy with the video camera right yes yeah yeah the, the... Uh, sorry go on oh no i was i was gonna say like so 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 he first he first sees like this guy with the video camera and they're doing they're doing bum fights right like they're they're forcing uh homeless people to fight 
for for amusement and then they're giving them a pittance of money um and at first he's like he he kind of eschews that and he's like that's something i'm never going to stoop that low right and and he's his dream is to buy this lawnmower and we will get into the lawnmower later because i think the lawnmower is one of the most like powerful icons in this movie mm-hmm. but like the lawnmower is is in part a symbol of this kind of like classist attitude towards labor like like that's he's what he's doing when he's trying to acquire this lawnmower and save up for it is he's is he's doing this kind of like bootstrap mentality thing he's going to save up he's going to start a career uh doing groundskeeping you know he's going to rebuild himself you know he's going to pull himself up the the good old way he's not going to stoop low like those other people doing unfavorable kinds of labor he and he's we we see here that our character is in and of himself like he's not this perfect like uh i like like leftist uh, you know like avenging angel who's coming into this town to like organize the people and set things straight he himself is still imprisoned in this like bourgeoisie mentality Mm -hmm. um but he says he's not going to sink that low he says (laughs) until later in the film when he's forced to yeah but he's he's forced to i think which is which is the the thing that's the the one of the scenes that's like uh i find quite affecting is where the guy is like standing in front of him, like waving a ten dollar bill, mm-hmm. and he's like, uh, "You know, smash the glass in your face, and then I want you to eat it." It's like, no, I'd never do that. But of course, he ends up he ends up doing it, uh, and the guy responds to him, "You've you've earned your money today." And it's like, yeah, and then he I, he forces him to pick up the money with his mouth like a dog, just a just a yeah, complete with his, with his now like slashed open uh, mouth, so he's bleeding all over it, and it's like. This is not a subtle metaphor, but if you want a visual metaphor for for what is labor under capitalism, there you go. It's, it's, this is literally wage labor. We are all eating glass all the time. You know, every every paycheck that comes in, that's that's your boss going like, "Good boy, pick it up." You know, like, and you're absolutely right. This movie, this movie has like a negative amount of subtlety, if that's even possible. <laughs> um yeah but it's like it's like uh the 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 toll of uh labor in terms of the the mental toll that it takes on people the physical toll um the the time and energy uh and uh, physical well-being that employment forces out of us takes away from us uh takes away from us by by force and by threat uh here you have a perfect example um here you have a perfect example of what that looks like um you know marx wrote extensively about about mm-hmm. you know what did factories actually do to the bodies of working people you know what happens to uh garment workers or fruit pickers or uh any other industry that is is uh an industry that someone like this character might end up working in, right? What happens to, to you physically? Um, and you see it in this film. You see it in 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 kind of graphic detail. Um, so it becomes really difficult to just see this character, to see Rutger Hauer's character as this kind of like uh, vague avatar. Um, as you say, he's much more complicated, much more conflicted in some ways than that. And uh, scenes like this offer, add, add a kind of like huge amount of kind of depth to it as a character as well. Yeah, it gives him it gives him a lot of 
pathos that he's not morally complete at the start of the film and in, in terms of his actions right he's he's very much just trying to figure out the nightmare world he's stuck in like he's is his material conditions are, are probably very different from from everything that's being faced by the listeners of our show but like the the core condition that he's in right being stuck in in a world ran by capitalism is is the same right and i think his his transition from oh i'm going to i'm going to save up money and i'm going to make a business investment and then i'm going to climb that ladder you know like his transition from that to like he you know he's going to do the lowest labor possible you know by by his estimation he's he's going to like do do something that's morally wrong is is this uh it it gives us kind of like a window in which to see labor from a new angle right there there is no there is no dishonorable labor right like like all work is is humiliating and degrading and debasing right like the difference between him you know trying to like go door to door saying do you need me to mow your lawn and him eating glass is you know it exists in a, a material reality it exists in the fact that one will damage his body much quicker you know and those those particular material realities need to be acknowledged but at the same time like there is this level of debasement and degradation that comes with the fact that like we have to sell our bodies and sell our time uh yeah absolutely um there's a terry eagleton quote that i like because it um it annoys people who jump to conclusions which is that one of the very best reasons for being a marxist is if you don't like work <laughs> if you think <laughs> If you think if you think work is bad, then um, yeah, welcome. <laughs> and it's bad precisely for those reasons. You know, it 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 deprives us of of our potential. It limits us. It restricts us. It takes away our agency. It takes away our physical and mental well being, uh, and it steals the value that we produce. So I think I, I think this has been a great. Uh, opener on our protagonist for the movie, but let's uh, let's let's pay a quick visit to our antagonists, uh, Drake, Ivan, and Slick. Ah, uh, yes. So um, the hobo has arrived in. Uh, is it just called Ho Hope Town? I believe I believe the town is called Hope Town, but when he arrives in town, somebody has spray painted over Scum Town on mm -hmm. it. Um. And as I said, it, the town kind of has some serious um, social problems. Um, and it, it, a lot of it seems to be connected, works its way back to these three figures. How, how would you describe them? Uh, so, so Drake is uh, uh, like, like he, he's, he's the leader of, of Scumtown's Chamber of Commerce, right? He, he's, he's, the, he's the business leader of the community. Um, and that makes him the most heartless, uh, uh, monstrous, and uh, loathsome figure in the town, right? He is, and, and because like, you know, a subtle movie would have had him be some kind of businessman who, who maybe hires a henchman to do some evil deeds, but no, no subtlety here because this movie is showing you reality as it is, right? So, so Drake is, is a, a Bateman level psychopath you know, who is, who, who wanders the streets mutilating and killing people who slight him. And we're first introduced to Drake, Ivan and Slick when they have captured uh, uh, the legendary Rob Wells. I'm a huge fan of Trailer Park Boys. So I love watching this movie because I go, oh, Trailer Park Boys. 
<laughs> um, but Rob Wells is playing this character named Logan, and the whole time Logan is apologizing to Drake, and he's like, "Oh, you'll you'll get your money. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again." Um, and they they have like a a manhole cover around Logan's neck, and they they put him into a manhole on the ground, and then and then pull his head off with a car. Uh, so that's our introduction to these three. Oh, and then like like Logan or uh, Drake Drake pays some women to dance in the fountain of blood that's coming up from his neck. So we have like complete lack of care for the world around them and for their community. And like, I, I think this introductory scene is really important, right? Because the hobo's there um, as when he first comes into towns, like the first thing he sees um, Drake and Ivan are there. Ivan or um, yeah, Drake, Ivan and Slick are there. Ivan and Slick are Drake's fail sons. Um, but like the, the whole time Logan is like, and there's a crowd gathered around and the whole time Logan is pleading this crowd to help him to do something. And there are like dozens of people in this crowd. There's at least like 50 people watching the, the, the like, uh, Drake, Ivan slick and like one enforcer murder this dude and nobody moves and nobody acts. And again, no subtlety here, but this is a great metaphor for not acting collectively, for not connecting in with community, for not, or for treating, societal problems as individualistic ones because that is a recipe to uh in this case get your get your head cut off and have someone dance in a fountain of blood uh the drake is what if patrick bateman was also a children's cartoon character (laughs) is is how is how i think of it um and yes he also has his two ridiculous fail sons who are kind of so collectively the three of them seem to basically control this town right yeah. um uh they are clearly embedded in the uh political and economic structures of the town they basically run the police force and oh we will we will get to the pigs in a minute we're getting there <laughs> uh but ivan and slick have kind of inherited all of this as as like basically the, the apotheosis of cocaine fueled fail sonnery and it's just amazing yeah yeah it's just like and there, there, there's there's so, so much in this movie too about like particularly about like how how patriarchy ruins fatherhood because you have like you know we, we get the scene later on in the movie where like the hobo has slighted drake by by like beating him up or not not beating up drake but beating up one of his sons you know, and like Ivan, Ivan is kind of like, he's the less intelligent one. He's just kind of a brute and like, you know, like Drake doesn't care for him at all. But Slick is the one that he's grooming to take over his empire. Right. And like, like ostensibly the only thing Drake actually cares about in this town is his one son Slick. But we find out through the literal text of the movie that that's not even true. And we get this like really powerful scene where like, you know, uh, Slick is talking about all the ways he's going to he's going to punish the hobo, right? All the horrible things he's going to do to him. And then Drake is like, that's not going to inspire fear. Like this town needs to be afraid of you. I need to be afraid of you. And like not not to cut too far ahead of the climax, but like towards the climax of the movie, like the, the hobo literally calls Drake a horrible father. You know, and there's so much in here about like masculinity and violence and how those systems are inherited and like what we equate to as masculine power Right. And like, like, I, you know, like that, I, I think is beyond the scope of today's discussion. But like Hobo with a Shotgun is rich for discourse. And it's also about this idea that like meritocracy is a complete lie. Yes. 
like like uh your your bootstrap narrative is complete is complete bullshit there will be no noble dignified work under this system you will all eat glass while some bumbling fail sons who are coked up to their eyeballs murder people in front of you that's that's what this film shows us as the promise of the perfect functioning of those interlocking systems of violent patriarchy and capitalist exploitation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's telling that like in this movie, like I, Ivan slick and Drake are good at, they're only good at one thing and that's violence, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, to, to be very specific and oppressive terroristic form of violence, right? They are literally terrorists, you know, in, in, oh, a, yeah, in a very really. classic definition of terrorism in that they rule this town through sheer terror and nothing else. Yeah, completely. Um, and it's it's often um, women and children who bear the brunt of that patriarchal terrorism. Um, just as in uh, real life, all too tragically. Um, but there is a kind of like side point to to pick up on here. Because I, I feel like we need to, we've started to touch on it, but I think we need to get more into the kind of aesthetics of this film. Um, and it's worth talking about Ivan and Slick, maybe, as the way in here. Because they have a kind of, like, gang. And they have they have their, their squad. And they have their own particular style, shall we say. Uh, and I wonder what you think about that. So so Ivan, Ivan and Slick are dressed like mid 2000s like preppy high school students right like they have like like what look like high school blazers with their names on the back and they're dressed very like in that period's version of clean and bourgeoisie middle class aesthetics right and like that that's got its that's got its own easy to read uh, uh visual metaphor and language i will leave to you but what's more interesting is they're they're like core gang you know, and like we're we're gonna talk about Death Wish here in a second because this movie is definitively better Death Wish. Um, but like in the first Death Wish movie, like the kind of like the the in, in massive quotes street thugs are all like weird. Like you could see the Mad Max influence. They're all like weird Mad Max leather fetish biker gang people. Mm-hmm. And like and and this movie's only like connection to that are these like punk rockers, right? And like they're 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 like Slick's immediate social group, I guess, or his like his crew or whatever. Um, but like, I think it's important to point out that like their their aesthetics, you know, like we often talk about punk as like this left medium and this left art form, but like like the the aesthetics alone can just be wholly subsumed by whatever they need to be subsumed by, right? Like you know, so if you want a deep kind of conversation about like aesthetics and like um rock culture right we did an episode on lords of chaos with nestor from black banner magic that gets really into this but like you know we we have in this one like a gang of like reactionary right-wing punk rockers you know and i think i think the impulse to inherently read anything punk has left has some some holes in it let's say yeah absolutely it's not it's not a it's not a good way of working because it inherently limits your analysis if you go well, this kind of aesthetics is um, leftist mm-hmm. and you don't pay attention to actual content. You end up making some real strange choices. Um, so it's it's not really kind of surprising then uh, that you've got this kind of like 
super preppy, slicked back hair, bourgeois fail son who underneath that very kind of polished and controlled exterior is a, a kind of ghoulish cartoon who who loves like physically maiming people. <laughs> I think that's I, I think it says quite a lot about what this film thinks yeah. about like the American middle class man. <laughs> Definitely. I, I think that is is one hundred percent the way to read uh the the costuming choices for Slick and his cohorts. Cool. Um so I know related to the to the aesthetics of the costuming choices in this movie I know you wanted to talk about the use of color in Grindhouse. Yeah, this is a really interesting film from a kind of aesthetic and and, and stylistic point of view because there are like super saturated frames and shots in this film where you'll have like just entirely blue or entirely red or like incredibly bold, non-realist, like hyper-stylized uses of color. And I think the, the the kind of closest stylistic influence here is um, Italian giallo. Um, and I was wondering whether you kind of agree what you what you think about how this film uses color, um, where you think that kind of influences the the, the grindhouse. Because grindhouse to me is always it's always had like this kind of like scuzzy, violent, super kind of quote-unquote realist aesthetic right it's designed to be like something kind of shockingly raw and then at the same time you've got this like hyper stylized hyper intense color palette and i i wonder what you thought about that kind of combination i i think i think it's a natural alignment right like giallo in 2020 is not the same as giallo when it was first emerging you know like uh, giallo is essentially just italian grindhouse right grindhouse movies uh were incredibly low budget and they were they were packed full of uh, shocking offensive material uh because they wanted to draw in a bunch of crowds so you'd see a bunch of naked people you'd see a bunch of sex you'd see a bunch of blood and gore and monsters and stuff because like you know they were they were going to these like like uh, uh, dingy theaters and you'd churn through these movies really quickly. And like, that's where the name Grindhouse comes from. You'd literally be grinding through these films. And like, it's, it's very, it very much emerges from, from that context. And that's the same kind of context that Giallo comes out of in Italy, right? Like it, this is, this is pulp cinema just in two different styles, but like in 2020 grindhouse is still grindhouse and now giallo has emerged and been reinterpreted as like an art house modality for horror and i think that that that's an interesting framing for the for the context of this movie because you you, you can definitely feel both both genres in this film like this is 100 percent a grindhouse movie you know it's it's doing oh, yeah. everything that grindhouse wants to do and that's looking dirty and real and raw and being packed with a bunch of like just over the top violence, over the top drug use, over the top, you know, like sexuality. But you've got all of this, like, like the blood in this movie has like a very giallo feel to it because the blood in this movie, it, it, it drops the realism and it's like this cartoony cough syrupy kind of red. And there are literal fountains of it all over the film and it's constantly being dumped in buckets on people and it's more, more evil dead you know, in, in that interpretation, but that those bright pops of red, like have, have this weird giallo vibe to them. Oh yeah. I mean, the violence in this is like cartoonish, 
Like people, like people's heads come popping off like champagne corks. Mm-hmm. People, people's bodies are basically just big bags of corn syrup and food right. coloring. <laughs> like, you know, uh, when 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 a hobo grabs the shotgun, he also grabs the cheat code for infinite ammo. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. like, like it's 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 uh it's just a lot of fun. But I do, I do really like the fact that I think this kind of connects back to what we were talking about in the context of the hobo's character, right? There's, and this is all credit to Rutger Hauer's performance because I think quite a few of the other actors they get what kind of film they're in. Hauer like plays it so straight. He's so c- kind of c- he commits to the bit, which is the thing that you want, right? Because it adds kind of pathos, it adds it adds anger, it adds sorrow. And I, I really like the use of color because it, it serves as an emotional intensifier, a really key beat, beats in the story, which means that, yeah, this is just a kind of like a dumb, goofy grindhouse movie that you can go and be like, oh, did you see how far that guy's head went? But there is there's also, I think, in here, um, like some genuinely kind of intense, moving, engaging cinema. No, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that the... The decision to make the gore so over the top really underscores and highlights this, you know, like is it's it's playful. It's inviting you into the movie, right? The fact that like everything here is dialed up to 11, except for Rucker Hauer, who is who Ruck, Rucker Hauer is playing a very grounded grindhouse character. And and also Abby to to an extent a character we'll talk about in a bit but like the, everybody else is like dialed up to eleven and they're playing the most over the top versions of themselves possible. I think that 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 lures you in to 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 the movie. It gets you a little bit closer to it than if it would be just like a bit of like just because kind of like if it would be less less grindhouse and more just like I don't know machete or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that brings us on to like a really um a kind of really important point that we want to talk about, which is this film and the kind of form that it's participating in, which is this is a this is a vigilante film, right? So what yes. happens is our hobo has saved up the money to buy his lawnmower. He goes into the store, the store is gonna be robbed by some people who are threatening to kill a mother and her baby. Instead of paying the $49 for uh, the lawnmower. He sees there's a shotgun for the same price, picks up the shotgun, and he just starts blowing these people away. Um, so this is, this, is a, this is a vigilante film. Uh, and there is a kind of long, very complicated, very contested history about vigilanteism in film, in cinema. But really, we should probably start with uh, the, the kind of genesis point for a lot of this which is death wish uh what do you think about death wish uh death wish is a really interesting movie because it's kind of it's it's not the first vigilante movie it's not the only vigilante movie but it has fundamentally shaped how we look at and create vigilante cinema if we if we want to like manifest this as its own genre Mm -hmm. and like the the first death wish it tries to not be reactionary a little bit 
in the fact that like as, as we talked about earlier right the costuming choices it's just 100 mad max you know it's 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 in that pocket of cinema where like the only costuming department for kind of mobs of bad guys were, were like like leather daddy doms you know and like everybody else was out of business right after mad max but like uh, the the problem with death wish comes from the fact that like it's it's reactionary vigilantism you know and like like i know you wanted to talk about how that tied into the war on crime well okay so well what is what is i mean death wish is a, is a weird movie right it's a yeah it's essentially the revenge fantasies of the emerge like a moneyed middle class yes taking mm-hmm. taking 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 a, a violent revenge upon um the urban poor that's that's what death wish is about um it, charles bronson is this uh successful middle-aged architect uh he is uh the victim of very violent crime and he uh, starts taking revenge on just people on the street um I, it's 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 deeply unpleasant weirdly it's directed by michael winner who's most known in the uk for being a, a food critic <laughs> when, he stopped making, when he stopped making films um and i think a lot of this ties back into t- ties back into a lot of american political discourse around the war on crime mm-hmm. um i mean which goes back to lbj goes back to this idea of like uh you know the the long the lot of what year was it i think was it 68 where there was um riots in loads of major cities across across america often connected to the civil rights movement so this idea of like urban poverty became a code code word for Mm -hmm. crime which kind of moves into law and order policing which moves into the militarization of police which moves into, you know, the the generational continuation of state violence against people of color and black people in America. So to say that to say that like Death Wish tries not to be a reactionary film, I think is true, but it, it ties in in some ways. But I think its message is like very simple, yes. and very effectively, and very straightforwardly delivered, which is that the cities are full of poor, dangerous people who are going to come and kill your wife and take all of your nice stuff and really the only logical thing for you to do as a member of the uh, middle class bourgeois is to go out and murder as many of them as you possibly can yes i think if we're going to be really honest about what death wish is it's really just propaganda then that is flatly what the death wish franchise is especially the bruce willis death wish reboot which is just straight up racist propaganda but I, i think like Part of the thing to highlight about the contrast between Death Wish and Hobo with a Shotgun is that, like, you're absolutely right. Death Wish is kind of this moneyed middle class that's that's cleansing the streets of these undesirables. And Hobo with a Shotgun is is someone at the absolute bottom of the economic chain, you know, delivering justice upward. You know, like, we we live in a world where, like, the, the, single, the single biggest uh, uh, sector for theft is literally wage theft. It's literally your boss stealing your time and your money. There is no greater theft than that. But we live in a world that doesn't persecute that. We live in a world where, where you will you can go to jail for trying to steal your groceries, but your boss will never face meaningful consequence for trying to steal your wages. Yeah. 
I mean, what the 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 question that I think Hobo with a shotgun is trying to answer is can you make a non-reactionary vigilante movie? And the only way you can do that really is to take into account um material conditions. Absolutely, yeah, I completely agree. This is why this is why Batman is terrible. <laughs> oh no, Batman is okay. Fuck Batman. Batman is it's every every single Batman everything. It's it's oh boohoo, I'm Elon Musk, and instead of doing literally anything good for the world, I am just gonna go beat up poor people all day long. Yeah. Well and it at its core, it's about vigilantism. Yes. Yes. Right? But but instead of being on a societal level, it's psychologized to the neurosis of one insignificant billionaire. Completely. But but Hobo with a shotgun is aware of all of this. And so you start from the position of class struggle. You start from the position of class exploitation. You start from the position of vengeance. Uh, if you want it, if you if you think in the logic of retributive violence, it should flow one way, and it is upwards towards the rich, towards the exploiting uh, classes, not downwards. Can, can I can I say a Batman take really quick? Yeah, of course. A little, a little, a little. Since since we since we uh, fired up the bat signal, open challenge to show me a good Batman comic, movie, or animated thing, please. One, just one, is all I'm looking for here. With Superman, even if we want to eschew the problems with superhero stories, we have we have secret identity. We have it's a bird. You know, there are heart moving Superman stories that are being woven out of the the complexity that you can get from that character. Batman. You get reactionary violence and be in a mope. That's it. That's yeah. it. I'm, I'm dropping my bat, my bat symbol shaped microphone. Please bring me a good <laughs> Batman something. And this isn't. I'm not being snide here. I would honestly like it. Maybe I'm missing something that's good in the Bat universe. But show me, show me something that escapes the the Batman black hole that is reactionary violence. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like if you. If you think if you think justice is a matter of of violent revenge, which is is a is another thing in in and of itself, and you start from a position of ignorance about economic reality, about class systems, about material conditions, then what you will end up with is almost inevitably you'll end up with rich, materially comfortable people murdering and physically injuring uh, the poor and desperate. That's that's what you'll end up with. But if you if you are aware of the, of the fact that capitalism is a thing, and that that um, subjective interpersonal violence exists within the frame and in the field of the objective violence of capitalist exploitation, what you might end up with is is if you're if you're you know a half decent filmmaker, is hobo with a shotgun, right? And like I think I think this dovetails into our next point nicely because like I, I guess I guess the Adam West Batman. There we go. A good, a possibly kind of good Batman. It's funny at the very least. But even I, in that I, one, I, I, in, all, in all sincerity, I think the Adam West Batman is the only good one. So I, I would, I would agree with that. But, but even in that one, Batman's still a cop. I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but I think that if you listen back to all of our shows, we've been doing this for a little while now. You'll start to see that we, each of us, have our own kind of theoretical interests and ways that we approach films. And I think both of us have 
have themes and issues that we kind of share in common and places similar places that we start our political analysis from um and i think this is probably one of the bedrocks of that which is uh three little words fuck the police <laughs> right right and, and like i think you you go back through every movie we've ever talked about and indeed uh, pretty much every horror movie ever what what is one of the big lessons that you take away what, what's one of the things that you realize right off the bat even when your heroes of the movie are cops it's that the, the police as, as a police force and as, as a societal body, completely useless. Absolutely and completely useless. And not just useless in this case, actively malicious and actively dangerous. Yes. Um, because, because our hobo um, does, uh, does, does, does everything right, quote unquote, at first, right? You know, he sees... Um, slick about to 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 murder somebody um but he he uh knocks him out takes him to the police station um and um says you should arrest him he's done everything right he's done everything that you are supposed to do uh and what happens is that it turns out of course that the police uh the entire police force is hopelessly corrupt um he's physically abused uh the police chief and slick carve the word scum into his chest with a knife and then literally throw him into uh, the, uh into a, a big garbage bin at the back of the building that is how the police will treat you <laughs> accurate so one of the things this movie does really well is it is it is it depicts the material realities of our culture with absolutely no subtlety the, the, this this isn't a cartoonish representation of corrupt police this this is literally what the police are this is their societal function they, you know, the, the the police are there for social control and the protection of property. Full stop. There's nothing else that's in their purview. They do those things and nothing outside of those things. You know, and like this movie just flatly shows you that. And like you're completely right when you kind of like I loved how you phrased the hobo's actions as being like, you know, quote unquote, correct in the terms of society. Right. He doesn't even like swing in and beat beat up slick and take him in. He he issues a citizen's arrest before attempting violence. You know, he he does he does every you know, he is straight out of like Mayberry. He's like an extra from the Andy Griffith show, you know, coming yep. in, issuing a citizen's arrest, taking the criminal off to the sheriff, saying it's time we do something about these hoodlums. And like e even with how correct it quote unquote his actions are he's still faced with the material realities of the world that we live in uh yeah which is which is very simple don't ever don't ever trust the police <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, don't, it's, don't ever do it right i mean it's, it's a it's a classic classic lesson a lesson there uh don't don't say anything until your lawyer's present yeah. Hobo from Hobo um, with a Shotgun, take notes. <laughs> but we're going to get more into yes. the kind of true, um, like genuinely, the, the police in this are just utterly disgusting. Um, uh, we're going to get more into that. Um, but let's let's kind of circle back around to 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 our Hobo with a Shotgun again. And we, we kind of talked a little bit about this. We talked a little bit about you know, who he starts attacking, who he starts trying to take on. We've talked about um, the crowd that we're watching at the beginning and not really doing anything. And there is a a great quote from this, which we both really liked. 
Um, and maybe we can talk about like what does this hobo do, and what does he symbolize during this film? Yeah, yeah. Would you would you want to start kick this one off because I am absolutely in love with how you phrased this, and I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> the the quote that we both really liked is he says to somebody, "King's fall." You know, he says uh, somebody tells him that like the Drake is like a king. You know, he says, "Well, King's fall. You should read a history book sometime." Uh, the way that I I put it is like the point of him, uh, the hobo, is a revolutionary a re- revolutionary psychopomp. Uh, so psychopomps are guides. They are kind of it's often thought about in kind of spiritual or non material terms, right? They are, um, you know, um, Chiron on the River Styx is a psychopomp, someone who will take you across the land of the dead. Um, but there are these kind of figures which have a kind of great deal of imaginative potential that can inspire a state of change in a person. They can take you into a, a new kind of existence. And what if the figure of the hobo becomes a revolutionary psychopomp, right? Because he's not a he's not a kind of perfect avatar of radical politics. We're going to get into some of the ways in which it's a little bit kind of like problematic and maybe stuck in old ways of thinking, but he's got the potential to inspire. He's not just like leading a revolution by himself. His, the point is that he inspires revolutionary consciousness in other people. Right? No, I, I, I completely agree. And I love your phrasing of him as a revolutionary psychopomp because psychopomps are also the grim reapers. You know, they're, they're also figures of death, right? And like death, death lives in all of us. It's, it's in our bodies, right? Both in a, a metaphoric sense that we will one day die and that is an inescapable reality of the condition of life, but also in a, in a continuous way, right? You know, we, we feast on death, right? To, to eat is to kill and to die, right? And our cells die and regenerate every day. We're looped into these cycles, you know? You know, your, your long forgotten high school friends, your memory, their memories of you are dying off and fading away as new memories and new friendships are kindled and seeds are planted for the future. So there's something that's like universal, about the hobo and hobo with a shotgun, right? And this phrasing of him as a psychopomp is, I think, really meaningful because in addition to the universality of this kind of death imagery, there's also uh, the near universality of becoming uh, uh, housing insecure and becoming, you know, just just absolutely destitute, right? You know, like we are all so close to that condition. Think of how many how many paychecks could you miss until you were evicted or starving, right? How long could you really live with your parents or like, you know, crash at a friend's place until you were able to recover, right? Like these things are incredibly important to recognize that we are so much closer to the hobo and hobo with a shotgun than we are to Drake and Slick. Uh, Just to kind of reinforce what you were saying, a quick quote from John Burgess on the economy of the dead. How do the living lie with the dead? Until the dehumanization of society by capitalism, all the living awaited the experience of the dead. It was their ultimate future. By themselves, the living were incomplete. Thus, living and dead were interdependent, always. Only a uniquely modern form of egotism has broken this interdependence, with disastrous results for the living, who now think of the dead as eliminated. I think this ties so clearly back to what you were saying right this idea of like that could never happen to me 
it's so important that it's it's this figure of the hobo who is deliberately excluded from the norms of capitalist society exists on the on, as a marginal yet central figure right mm-hmm. because it it exposes the um precarity right of our own existences right it reminds us of our interdependency um which is why i find the, i find the ending of this film actually quite powerful in lots of ways um for precisely those reasons right because the whole point is that people can be awoken to a sense of their own class capability not just their own individuality but their interdependence not just with the other people who are living like like we are but the people who are living in ways which are marginal or maybe even the people who are no longer living and like i think all of this connects into such a a great like reality is far more cyclical and far more connected than we like to recognize, right? Capitalism and modernity wants things in tight little compartments that can be separated and restacked and resorted as needed, but everything is interdependent, you know? And it's not that the condition of the hobo and hobo with a shotgun is something that could happen to you in a potential future. It's something that's actively happening to you right now that you struggle every day to not fall into, Right. We're, we're all at the edge of the waterfall swimming as hard as we can to not go over the side, but the tide is sucking us down each day and each night, you know, like that, that is the condition of waged labor. You know, it's not, Mm -hmm. it's not hoping that this doesn't happen to you. It's constantly fighting tooth and nail to avoid it. Yes, absolutely. And that fight is what this film depicts, right? Absolutely. I actually find the way that this this film depicts people really interesting because you you mentioned it right at the top of the show that a lot of the time there are masses of people here but they're just kind of watching they're not really sort of doing anything or or they're acting like very much out of self interest um and like we we know we know that actually in in general people are a lot more prone towards um towards altruism and acts of selflessness for other people than than generally we assume and i i don't don't know i just wondered what you think about that how this how this film kind of presents human nature and that shifts from very individualized almost selfish um egoistic ways of thinking towards more collective action by the end i i think i think it's a great depiction of just class solidarity you know like like the 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 movie starts with everyone uh being uh, kind of completely class unconscious, right? It, start, it starts with the depiction of a whole town as lumpen, you know, like they're all just kind of adrift in the gears and machinations of the capitalist world around them. And they, they, they're just without collective will. And then Slick decides that the only way to punish the hobo is to do, you know, like literal terrorism that like inspires other people to become violent so, so he he decides that attacking this one hobo wouldn't be enough. He needs to attack the community and to get them to turn on people. So, so what he does is he like sets fire to a bus full of children, and like th- this movie again does not flinch. This movie never blinks once. Right? You we we see Slick and Ivan walk onto a bus full of kids with a flamethrower, and then torch the entire bus in in graphic detail right like in in the point of that scene which is kind of unnerving to watch is is really a reminder of what's happening in the world around us right like our the next generation our children they're going to get ground up in the gears you know like they're going to get sucked up just like we were and i think like and then that 
you know, like, like Slick essentially announces to people that like, hey, like, you, you either go after the homeless of this town, or we're going to keep going after your kids. And then people, people adopt like this bourgeoisie class mentality, right? Where they're like, oh my God, those horrible homeless people, we have to exterminate them. And it's not, it's not until the end of the movie when you kind of see that go, go through its complete journey where we go from unconsciousness to antagonism, to, to being a community, right? To, to coming together and banding together to fight the actual oppressive forces. And I think that that, the completeness of that journey in this film is really useful <laughs> to watch. I, and it's only when that journey has been completed that the kind of hobo's efforts are actually going to be aimed towards something bigger. Cause a kind of a very, very mild critique here is that in my opinion is that there is a difference between his cleaning up the streets uh, versus revolutionary class consciousness, right? That's 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 the value of the ending is that you see that, right? Because if you're cleaning up the streets, you're just one person. He quite a lot of the people that he kills are other people engaged in in quote unquote criminal activity. Um, they they are they are almost kind of caricatures, you know, the way that they're presented, which we can maybe get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's but it's it's inherently limited right it's one person acting um individualistically but that journey that you talked about that shift from um isolated individuals being formed into an antagonistic class unity and then coming to what we would call class consciousness mm-hmm. shows the distinction right you can't clean up the streets if you really want to transform the society what you need is not just individuals making kind of moralistic uh choices what you need is revolutionary class consciousness yeah no i i think you're completely hitting the nail on the head with this one it's good though it's good it's like but that's that's why the ending works it's because it's about it it's no longer about what does this one hobo do mm-hmm it's it's about it's about this entire surrounding group of people this entire community that appears on the on the barricades uh with rifles pointed at the cops <laughs> right and we, we will we will get there <laughs> we're still we're slowly working our way towards that one yeah we'll um, get we'll get to that in a moment yeah this oh my god this episode is so good this movie i really i can't recommend this movie enough because it's just so rich with discursive potential there's a couple more things that we should talk about though first um we've touched on it briefly but i i want to kind of maybe draw out some of the ways in which um you know this is we've said this film is like really very clear and very obvious you know it literally has our antagonists burn a busload of school children uh because school kids like the hobo and they like the homeless um, and it's it's extremely explicit and very shocking, but there are also kind of areas in which we we maybe want to pick at like some of the uh, slightly regressive ways of thinking in this film. And I know you wanted to talk about this uh, with the kind of most powerful symbol uh, of the film, which is the lawnmower. <laughs> So I, th- I find I find the lawnmower to be really interesting, right? And I kind of like we let, let the cat out of the bag already and discuss the first half of the lawnmower, right? It is it is it is the, the movie's metaphor and symbol for the bootstrap mentality, 
you know, you gotta, you gotta just, you know, you gotta get on that grind. You gotta work hard and then lift yourself up. And then one day, you know, you'll have the white picket fence and two kids and you'll be a business owner. And like, it is, it is all of that bound into a single object. But what, what is a lawnmower? You know, and like, don't, don't answer that literally, right? It's a, it's a machine that cuts grass, blah, right? Like, but what is that? You know, what, what is this thing? And what is this thing in context with horror movies, right? And like, what we find in horror movies is that the tools of working class labor are the tools of immense violence. You know, machetes, butcher knives, chainsaws, lawnmowers uh, in this movie and a few others. Right. Like these these devices, these these pieces of of kind of industrial working machinery are are connected into massive amounts of violence. Right. And like part of the reason that is, is because they're woven into a system that necessitates massive amounts of violence. Right. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the best example of this. Right. Like, you know, meat hooks, freezers, gigantic knives, like all of the tools of a butcher in the context of industrial cattle butchery are being instead turned on people because they are turned on people by the machinations of capital, right? And this is the lawnmower in this film. But we see with the second half of the movie with a character that we're going to get into next, Abby, right? Like she repurposes the lawnmower. She changes what it's there for. And it goes from being a symbol of this kind of like reactionary bootstrap mentality to being a symbol of agency, to being a symbol of, of solidarity and defensive violence, right? Yeah. Because it's it becomes this idea of like if the bootstrap dream is revealed to be an ideological mirage, then what you have to do is take up those tools that are offered to you as means to access it and turn them to revolutionary ends. Yeah, no, like 100%, 100% correct. <laughs> and this is like, this has always been like the iconography of, of the left, right? Like, it's, it's, it's working, it's working class iconography, because it is what we are, and it's what we have access to. Yeah, precisely. You know, if this idea of like, oh, if you work hard, and you get your get, get the lawnmower, you can get a little business, and you'll build a better life. And they realize in the film, no, you won't. Because that's a lie. That's an that's an ideological myth that you've been told to believe. But what you do have is you have the lawnmower. So what are you going to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love I love that I love that you have the lawnmower. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> um. Yeah, but I think you know. So we mentioned Abby, and Abby is the the kind of secondary protagonist, right? Like like Abby is the uh, the hobo's only friend uh, confidant uh, ally throughout the course of the movie right um abby is a sex worker um mm -hmm. and we see that the hobo has like and again this is part of like the, the the complexity of this text right he doesn't emerge as a perfectly thought out character right he's constantly referring to abby as a school teacher and saying that she should become a teacher and she should do all these better things and this is pure projection, right? We never, we never have it in Abby that she's she's aspired to be a teacher or something, right? Like this emerges from the, the kind of the, the hobo's worldview, and and kind of what we see here is that like this ties into his kind of dismissal of of the bum fights thing earlier on, as he's in his head creating tiers of acceptable labor, and and mm -hmm. sex work to him is not inside of that, 
Right. And like that is that is something to critique about this movie. And that is something that we need to approach very critically is he's trying to view a world wherein like sex work is not <clears throat> sex work is viewed moralistically rather than materially. Which is bad. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to be really just just to like our movie have no subtlety. That's a bad way of looking at things. That, that is that's bad. Um, yeah. This idea of like. She even says to him. Like right at the end, she's like, "You know, you know, I'm not a school teacher, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 and it's you know, it's a deeply moralizing, and it's kind of caught up in this um, moral panic about sex work that I think a lot of horror at the time was was uh, very invested in. But once again, uh, this is another film that proves our thesis um sex workers (laughs) right and i think it's i think it's worth pointing out that like you know sex work is some of the most marginalized labor out there to just like i you know like these unhoused laborers and just like all of that stuff and like the history of the iww emerges from from hobos right from workers under some of the worst conditions you know and like so many social struggles have been led and and necessarily undergirded by sex work and I, I think there's something really instructive in this movie kind of unconsciously touches on that, right? Because like when, when the hobo, when our protagonist is at his, his darkest point, when, he, when, he's, when he's trapped by the drakes and he's about to die, who saves the day? It's Abby. You know, it is, it is a sex worker who winds up rallying the people of the town to his side. You know, it's, it's her who turns the tide of battle in the end. And it's her who kind of is like the, the torch is passed to her at the end to, to carry us into a better tomorrow. And I think there's something there's something really metaphoric about that that kind of demands our attention. It's really good. It's really good. Um, and again, what it's 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 Abby who repurposes that tool, mm-hmm. those tools that are supposed to get you access to the the the, the bootstrap uh, dream of capitalism, but repurposes them to liberate a community and to uh inspire revolutionary violence and disobedience like it's 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 so cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i think like the movie the the, the hobo gives us kind of like a reactionary view of sex work but abby's character uh, herself is very like again like the movie without subtext right very direct in everything that's going on and everything that's happening um, because they meet, they meet when um, the hobo is kind of reeling down the street, who's just been brutally physically attacked by the police, um, and she helps him. Like, there's no, it's it's a very uncomplicated sort of solidarity, you know, um, very straightforward, like you say. And she takes this person uh, back to her home. She she bandages them up, uh, gives him the bear jumper. Um, which is just great costume choices. Whoever, whoever, whoever decided that, just amazing. Um, and that's how it starts. You know, just uncomplicated, simple, immediate response to someone else. Uh, you reach out and you you connect with somebody, and she uses that ability in the end, but for a kind of revolutionary moment. Yeah. I, I think that is that is the most defensible possible reading. <laughs> but I think that that does get us in uh, uh, to to maybe uh, 
the the ethics of violence and the function of news media i guess <laughs> yeah i mean there's there's one there's one amazing uh kind of scene a little montage it's like um repeated newspaper headlines as he starts murdering people um and the one that i think both of us really loved was the headline hobo stops begging demands change <laughs> yeah that was that's fantastic uh you know like unionize the unemployed i think is the message for that one uh yeah basically um why not why why shouldn't it be the instead of uh, but let's kind of take a take a, a more direct approach which is that you know why why are rights and 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 freedom something that has to be begged for when it should be something that's demanded and taken absolutely yeah like rights i mean like this is this is kind of a, I, I don't know who to attribute this paraphrase to but like rights rights can never be given they can only be taken away and taken back simple as that you are you are 100% correct um there is there is one final thing that i think we should kind of talk about though before we wrap this up and to be honest i think we've only really started to to scratch the surface of what we could talk about there's so much more we could talk about with this film um there is one there's one moment which is where the drake has has released his assassins uh which is this ironclad nazi duo called the plague yeah um who are chasing down the hobo and abby and they decide that they they're gonna have to leave town um and they are they're gonna run away they're gonna set up their their brand new life you know they're gonna have the little lawn mowing business they're gonna escape um and they're, they're trying to kind of pack their stuff and i know this was a kind of scene that 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 you know you 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 had a very important and i think really interesting read on uh yeah yeah i guess before i get serious how prescient is it that the the uh, ruling and financial upper class uh use a quote-unquote plague in order to trim down the surplus population of labor um you know little on the little on the nose there movie from 2011 being watched in 2020 <laughs> yeah absolutely i was i was watching this and i was like oh my god that is that's really strange how that kind of overlaps with today. <laughs> um, but no, no. So there's there's like the scene where they're packing, right? And like Abby is like, oh, I think she's trying to like, oh, she's trying to take a TV, you know. And like the hobo who has like he's seasoned, right? You know, he's lived on the rails for for we're led to believe a long time now. And he's like, he's like, no, we got to travel light. And and like I, uh, you know, like we we got to travel light is like the, the line of dialogue that like really like hits home for me. But immediately after that, Abby goes, yeah, fuck TV. <laughs> she just throws the TV on the ground. <laughs> and I'm like, even in that fuck TV moment, I think there's a really good discursive avenue that we don't have time to go down. But like, like so as longtime listeners of the show will know, like I started or we started this podcast when I was like really housing insecure, right? Like, like I've spent the better part of the last like uh, two or three years. It's hard hard to count here in COVID time, you know, like just kind of like living, living on whoever's floor could host me and like being incredibly financially precarious and incredibly destitute. It wasn't until I experienced this that I really realized how close everyone is to living on that knife edge. You know, like I went from like a relatively comfortable, I mean, like 
com- relatively is like the you know really operative part of that phrase but a relatively comfortable life to like to like seriously like okay like you know where am i going to live next month kind of thinking being in that position and again like you know like to just to be very clear and direct like i wasn't homeless i wasn't like super at risk for like that level of of precarity and housing insecurity but nevertheless like it was super insecure and super precarious and like being in that condition and 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 just kind of like like tasting those challenges and and trying to like navigate life with like literally zero dollars this movie i think gives us a good avenue for this discussion right because everybody in this movie that winds up uniting at the end is so much economically closer to the hobo than than they would have ever realized up until the climax of this film and i think that that's something that we need to like really collectively grapple with and really sit with and take a moment to just slow down and process right the the people who are forced to be unhoused by the cruelty of our society are so much closer to our lived realities and our material conditions than than you would ever expect until it's too late until you're knocking on that door until you're about to get sucked over the metaphoric waterfall from earlier and that that's part of the power of hobo with a shotgun i really like that line i really like that line of we got to travel light you know we might have to give up some of those kind of things of what we think we we deserve what we think we are individually entitled to we might have to sacrifice some of our own individual you know prosperity or in the case of abby we might have to repurpose to revolutionary ends the tools of bourgeois bootstrap mentality but the way that we get out we travel light and we travel together Right. And I think that's that's the whole thing about there at the end, because like that, that travel light thing is, I think, really grim, because when you when you're faced with the, like the, the material conditions, approximately what the hobo is facing here, like you, you have what you can carry, which necessarily means that, like, you don't have anything that's not utilitarian, you know, and then also like by and by you lose everything of value because everything of value stops being uh, whatever, whatever it was and whatever relationship it had to you. And it starts being an economic resource. You know, it starts being like, oh, you know, I could sell this. I don't really need it. You know, I could sell it and pay off a bill, you know, and like by and by that's kind of what they're getting at there. But I really like your kind of like poetic flipping of this. You're 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 connecting it to the through line of this film, which is like, you know, like the material things we lose along the way are nothing compared to the solidarity that we can forge in, in their stead. What a great place to finish. What a great place to finish. Yeah, there's oh god, there's so much more that we can say about this movie, um, and, and there's definitely more that needs to be said about this movie. I think this is this is an untouched gem. If if you're into like just just left cultural discourse, I think Hobo with a Shotgun is just like it's it's a it's a font that's overflowing. Maybe 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 at some point in the future we might do like a little. Me and you will just we'll just have another forty five minutes and we'll just chat about it and put it up on Patreon or something. Oh yeah, good uh, good idea. A future teaser for a Patreon bonus episode. Cuz I still want to talk about what happens to Slick and Ivan. I still want to talk about the plague. I still want to talk about the scenes in the hospital. Uh this, this I still want to talk about 
fathers and sons mm -hmm. so much more we could talk about yeah we, we, we have to talk about that we have to talk about drug decriminalization we have to talk about race and racism like this the, this movie does not stop like like the shotgun that has infinite ammo this movie has infinite discourse and it's just <laughs> constantly being fired upon you <laughs> oh but thank you what a, what what an episode what an thank what you. an episode <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. This has been, uh, this like like the film has just been an absolute blast. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, creeps, and remember. Stay spooky. <laughs> <laughs>